Locked on NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts that have the local expertise. It's something that only the Locked On Podcast Network can bring you. And today, we will stop in New Orleans, where the devastating injury to Marcus Cousins has a ripple effect that goes for hours and weeks and months and maybe franchise history. Jake Madison, the Locked On Pelicans, will join us for that. Jason Kidd was fired, and the Bucks are on fire. Eric Name joins us from Locked On Bucks to talk about where they're going. And our final stop is what's happened in Detroit. Who's available in his Stan Van Gundy on the hot seat? Matt Shook joins us from Locked On Pistons. It's all coming up on the biggest stories from the local experts on the Locked On Podcast Network. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Biggest stories, local experts, no question. The biggest story of the week. It happens with DeMarcus Cousins late in the game. Ruptured Achilles tendon, done for the year. Serious question marks about his career. Jake Madison covers Locked On Pelicans fabulously. Joins us here on Locked On NBA. I'm going to try to be very focused here, Jake, because as you will be covering this for the next you know, two, three, five weeks, four months, it's an incredibly deep story. But let me just start first off. Impact on the Pelicans this season, between now and the end of the year, what does this do to the Pelicans? You know, this throws the short-term and the long-term future of this team kind of in doubt. DeMarcus Cousins was having maybe his best season as a professional, averaging over 25 points per game, almost 13 rebounds per game. And the Pelicans were starting to surge. They are six in the Western Conference at the time of the injury. They had just gotten their first four-game winning streak of the season punctuated with that dominant win over the Houston Rockets that only became close right towards the end. This was a team that might have been looking to make a push for the fifth seed or even the fourth seed and get a home court advantage in the first round. Now that's all cast in doubt. This team has struggled with just Anthony Davis on the court over the past number of years as the lone superstar. Are. He's going to have to shoulder a bigger burden. The Pelicans now, instead of fighting for playoff seeding, are fighting for their playoff lives coming up to the All-Star break and after that. If they can play just 500 basketball, that's going to be considered a big win. But there's not really a great track record here to say that they're going to be able to maintain that. All right. DeMarcus Cousins is a large man. The Achilles tendon is a career killer. There are very, very few stories of big men surviving it, of anyone, but really of big men. Uh, what is the feeling about the future of DeMarcus Cousins? You know, it's unclear right now. The Pelicans were going to offer him a five-year, 176 max deal, basically the first day they could in free agency, and now that's even going to be a question. Whether or not you even want to re-sign a player, like you said, bigs tend to struggle to come back from any type of injuries that have to do with their feet, let alone a ruptured Achilles that's going to require surgery and have him be out for 10 uh, months or so, maybe on a more realistic timeline. That's not easy to come back from, and if you're trying to plan for the future of a franchise, it's tough to build it around that. You know, I I think I had read, I think it was Kevin Pelton on ESPN.com, said players tend to take a dip of about 8% of their production coming back from these injuries. That's going to be significant for Cousins, and if you factor him being a big into it, you're looking at maybe 10 to 15% drop in production once he's fully recovered, which is likely going to take about two years. So this definitely causes him a lot of concern when it comes to free agency. It's going to cause the Pelicans a lot of concern because how do you build around that and the uncertainty with it? So right now, there's just this big cloud hanging over the organization and DeMarcus. 
I'm going to give you a comparison that struck me also because of the injury and see what your thought is. In, ni- in 2010, the Utah Jazz have Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, Mehmet Okor, Kyle Korver. They're rolling. They Mehmet Okor tears his Achilles tendon. This is a Jazz team that went 53-29. and 29. They were one of the top teams in the Western Conference. And they win the first-round playoff series against Denver. They get swept by the Lakers because they don't have a core to pull Bynum out of the middle anymore. But they have this great future. They're the up-and-coming team. Within six months, Darren Williams has been traded. Jerry Sloan is gone. And the franchise is in a complete rebuild. And it all stems back to Mehmet Okor tearing his Achilles tendon in Denver in game one of the playoffs, and he never plays again. Is there a parallel? I'd say you expect DeMarcus Cousins to come back and to play again, but there definitely is a parallel, at least in potential. You know, Cousins will come back. The problem is if you do re-sign him to a large deal, and he's still going to likely want a max contract, especially now to get that five-year deal and have that security when his future is a little bit uncertain and he's likely not going to be the same player again. But this is also a move that can doom a franchise. You commit large money to him, he doesn't come back to the exact same, and all of a sudden you can't really rebuild or put pieces around him and Anthony Davis because you've got these contracts on the cap and you don't have any flexibility. This could lead to Anthony Davis wanting out of New Orleans. This team, which did look to have a bright future climbing the Western Conference standings right now, look to bring back the same core next year, all of a sudden is going to be thrown in doubt with that. Does Anthony Davis want to stand through going to the first round of the playoffs and getting booted out or swept in the first round continually, or does he desire more greatness, which is truly what I think he is looking for and this could be a bad thing you've got Dell Demps the general manager who you know has been on the hot seat for the past number of years is certainly kind of GMing for his job right now he's got to kind of be worried about not wanting to tear this team down because he won't be here to be a uh, go through a rebuild so does he trade future assets to try and you know maximize the short term of this team hurting them in the long term you've got Alvin Gentry who's coaching for his job right now how does that affect him and do you feel comfortable firing him potentially after this season when the season was doomed for an injury that was out of his control. So, you know, there is potential where this team in a year's time is going to look completely different and have their fortunes reversed from trending upward to massively trending downward. Realistic decision would be to decide you're not going to re-sign DeMarcus Cousins because the risk is too high. Realistic decision on the backside of that would be with your cap situation that it'd be very hard to build a good team around Anthony Davis in that key year before his free agency really starts to kick in. Therefore, an argument could be made that the right move for the Pelicans right now is to trade Anthony Davis and start an entire rebuild. Do you buy it at all? No, I mean, if you're looking at this as maybe the best options and what you should do, then yeah, you've got to kind of look at that. Because if you don't even re-sign DeMarcus Cousins, you still don't really have any cap space because of the big contract you just gave to Drew Holiday. And admittedly, he's paying, playing really good basketball right now, but $25 million a year for him along with Anthony Davis and the bloated contracts of Omer Ashik, who finally saw the court for the first time in a handful of games uh, last night, and Alexi Ajinsa, who's not even playing currently and is out for the season really limits what you can do. So if you do want to rebuild, you've got to tear this whole thing down, even cracking the foundation that is Anthony Davis and kind of trying to build up a new one. 
the problem is you have people in position of power right now who are on the hot seat and are not going to be thinking about the long-term health of the franchise because they're more worried about their job security. So the Pelicans are in a really awful position with this happening. This injury doesn't happen. Life's good right now here in New Orleans. But now this does occur. You've got to realistically look at this. And when you have the ownership situation where, you know, Tom Benson owns the Saints and seems more concerned with that, you've got Mickey Loomis, his right-hand man, the GM of the Saints and the president of the Pelicans, who's not a huge basketball guy. You've got to wonder if they can really feel comfortable stepping in and doing maybe what does need to happen, which is trading Anthony Davis, which is not re-signing DeMarcus Cousins and burning everything to the ground. But when you have Dell Demps in charge and he's you know, one of the few GMs in the league, uh, there's 30 jobs here. He certainly wants to keep his position. He's not going to be thinking like that whatsoever. You may have just answered it right there, but I always like to finalize the interview with what is it from being on the ground with the team that you know that from 30,000 feet is being missed? Yeah, it's really the ownership. You know, you've got a GM here who is, like I said, GMing for his job and there's no other way around it. They're going to sacrifice long-term assets for short-term gain. I don't know if that's necessarily the best move to get into the first round and get swept by either the, you know, Rockets or the Warriors, which is what the most likely scenario is going to be. And this stems from a lack of accountability on this team. Um, there's a reason why De- general manager Dell Demps is one of the longest tenured GMs in the league. When you look at his record and some of the contracts he's given out and the winning percentage with the team here, and there's no reason he should be, but that's because you've got kind of an absent owner, an absent president who don't really know when to step in and do the right thing for the franchise. So it leaves these Pelicans in a constant state of flux and limbo where there's no real right direction for them to head to. Jake Madison does great work with Lockdown Pelicans. Biggest stories, local experts here on the Lockdown Podcast Network. From despair in New Orleans to euphoria in Milwaukee. Boy, that doesn't usually happen this time of year. One place is having Mardi Gras and the other is having cold, frozen rivers through their city. But that might be where it is. Eric Name is the host of Lockdown Bucks. Jason Kidd fired. Was there a parade in Milwaukee? I'm not sure it was an official parade. I don't know if anyone got about got around to actually organizing it, but it certainly felt like it in my Twitter mentions. Let me go back to the day the kids fired because I think there's something funky to that to me still. He gets fired at like two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon on a game day with two or three days off following. What happened that day that got Jason Kidd fired? I don't know that anything happened that day. Um, just kind of with the organizational structure in Milwaukee with the tri-headed owner, and then you have a bunch of people, and obviously it's come out that Giannis helped inform Jason about getting fired before it was actually official. And I just think there are a lot of places where Jason might have been able to hear something from and uh, I think he might have heard something earlier in the day, um, and he wasn't supposed to find out until Tuesday, and then all of a sudden the, the timeline gets moved up a little bit, and then that happens. that uh, he, he gets fired on a game day between shoot-around and uh, a game at home. I don't know if there was anything nefarious. It's certainly I haven't heard anything. I know there was rumors of here in Milwaukee of a blow up at practice or a blow up after shoot around. And I, from everything I've heard and everyone I've talked to that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so I think it was really just a matter of the bucks thinking that they were going to get it done on Tuesday. 
there's a ton of people that would have to know about a decision like this before it could be made official. And it got out, and Jason found out, and, well, you got to move the timeline up. All right, so Jason Kidd did some mysterious X's and O's things, but he also had these guys play really hard for him all the time. Uh, what was the energy and the player feeling toward Jason Kidd? Man, that's a, it's a really tough question because uh, – I know we had this conversation when you were in Milwaukee earlier this year, but they do just generally play hard. And I know Bucks fans always get really mad because in post-game press conferences, Jason will talk about energy and effort. And then when you ask players about what's going on, they'll say the same thing, that they didn't have enough energy and they didn't have enough effort. And uh, there's just kind of this this belief among Bucks fans, like you're crazy. How could you believe that it's energy and effort? Like, look at the, this scheme or look at what you're doing offensively. And those are the problems, not energy and effort. You, you silly players. Why do you, why do you believe this? Or, or why are you protecting Jason Kidd or whatever it may be? And I, I don't know that they were putting on any sort of show. I, I think they believed it. I do think that there was a, a connection there that they did believe in Jason Kidd's message and they would go out and play. They would play hard on most nights. But I think really the thing that kind of happened over the last month or so was that energy stopped being as consistent. And it, it's kind of interesting to watch these last couple games the Bucks are playing bad teams right now. This is the easiest part of their schedule. Um, the, the 10 games pretty much from – or the 11 to 12 games from now until the All-Star break. That's That was going to be the easy stretch. But often when they've played these these teams that aren't very good, they've struggled. Like they, they lost to the Bulls twice, and obviously the Bulls are playing better basketball when that happened. But they lost to them, and they've just never really had the opportunity. They've just never blown out teams. They've just never been in control the whole way. And now in the three games since Jason Kidd has been gone, they've kind of done that. They, they did that against the Suns, the Nets, and the Bulls three times. They put that away. So uh, I, I think in the last month or so, there's been a little bit of disconnect on the message and, and just not taking care of business on the nights that a team that has the talent of the Bucks should do. It, that, that just wasn't happening with Jason. Joe Prunty, who has a pretty interesting resume, is now uh, the acting head coach for this team. Uh, what is your his resume, by the way, Spurs? Avery Johnson in Dallas, one of the finals team with Nate McMillan and then with Jason Kidd. What is your uh, feeling on what his imp- impact's going to be and what he's trying to do? It's really tough to attempt to kind of figure out exactly what will happen here because before Jason had left, uh, obviously in Milwaukee, we had heard that, you know, Joe Prunty is the offensive coordinator, Sean Sweeney is the defensive coordinator. So you would think things wouldn't really change a ton, but as we've watched a couple of games, I, I think that spacing has been a little bit better. The ball has been moving a little bit better. Um, things have been ran a little bit higher on the floor. So I think there's some hope among Bucks fans that, that, Joe is going to kind of open things up a little bit more, create some more spacing, look a little bit more modern. Um, but at the same time, they've played three bad teams since Jason has been gone. So I think there's the the just kind of balance between the hope of Bucks fans and wanting to see something new and then 
the reality of Joe being very much in charge of the offense, but also he could have been in charge of it with some influence from Jason Kidd. So I think the next couple of weeks will kind of be separating what exactly that meant and whether or not Joe had, had a, a number of new ideas because there's been some of the like classic high spread Spurs pick and roll in the last couple of weeks uh, or in the last couple of games, excuse me. And there's been just, just generally better spacing and better ball movement with Joe. And it, it's tough to figure anything out because all the players say is, you know, Joe's really positive. He, he's, He's just a positive guy, and I think that would be the case anytime an assistant coach takes over for the head coach that you're going to say, okay, well, the assistant isn't the one that's going to be reaming you out for mistakes. That might be the head coach. So you're going to have kind of that good cop, bad cop dynamic. But at the same time, everyone I've ever talked to about Joe says those words, that he's the most positive person you, you could ever know. So maybe just having that positivity and that reinforcement of, of the ideas that that maybe Joe wants to spread that he wants to see the the ball move more he wants to see the floor spread out better he wants to run the offense a little bit higher on the floor like maybe all of that will will get through a little bit better now um, that it's just Joe and Jason isn't there uh, in any way to influence that interesting contrast just statistically when I prep for this interview that I'll throw out there the game against the Nets was the third best defensive rating the J- the Bucks defense has had all year the Bulls game was the tenth best. The biggest thing that Jason Kidd was criticized for was the amount of threes that he allowed. However, in both of those games, they, the Bucks allowed more threes than they had under Jason Kidd. Under Kidd, they allowed about 32, 33% of threes, shots to be threes. In the Buck, Nets game was 38%, and in the Bulls game was 39%. So a little bit of just the other guys missed or they closed out much better. But it's interesting to see the number one issue that Kidd was killed was the overshifting, overzealous defense. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether Prunty changes that. Uh, I can't tell statistically from the first few nights. Yeah, I think what we've seen thus far is more conservative play on pick and rolls, which is something that uh, obviously Bucks fans just really got tired of seeing those traps and high hedges um, so often with the bigs and kind of putting guys out of position. Since Joe has taken over, it has been largely John Henson dropping uh, on pick and rolls. And that part uh, of the Bucks defense has kind of uh, been dialed back a little bit in that he is uh, conservative pretty much all the time. And he had a really nice day uh, against the Bulls yesterday. He looked really good and was really affecting a lot in that drop kind of look. Uh, but some of the other things, the the overhelping and just kind of the, the overzealous nature of the way that they play on the backside – that to me was largely still there. And uh, the Nets started the game three for 19, I believe in the first half on Friday night. Um, So it's going to be good for your team when that happens, but also you gave up 19 three point attempts and a bunch of those were open and the Nets just missed. So uh, it, Bucks fans obviously were were really upset about the defense, and that's the spot I think if you're trying to circle something that got Jason fired, that the defense had not improved in the last three years after a top two performance in his first year. Um, but since that moment, I don't know that we've gotten any real clarification that other than the pick and roll portion of the defense, if anything is changing a ton there. 
Eric Name does great work with Frank Madden on Locked on Bucks, one of the best shows on the network. Local experts, biggest stories, as only the Locked on Podcast Network can. Our next stop is Detroit to find out what has happened to the Pistons. Matt Shook is the host of Locked on Pistons. And, Matt, we talked earlier this year. This team was in the top of the standings. Things looked great. We discussed whether it was real or not. I don't think we anticipated, though, that they could be four games under five hundred before the 50th game of the season and have lost eight in a row. So big picture for a second. What's happened? Well, the first thing that Pistons fans, the optimistic Pistons fans will tell you about is that the injury to Reggie Jackson has been the biggest catalyst for all of this. Now, if you look around the NBA, a third best player, a third most important player on a team shouldn't really cause this much problems. But when it's your point guard and it's a team that's offensively challenged already and had a good backup point guard, Ish Smith, who was perfect in that backup role of running a lot of up and down tempo with the second group, thrust him into those starting situations and also end-of-game situations where it's got to be going up against bigger and better point guards. And you know uh, around the NBA how many great point guards there are to deal with day in and day out. So this was a team that didn't have a lot of margin for error. They made some uh, adjustments to the game plan early on in the season. Some, some other teams, you know, after a while, they, they catch up with you with with up, up with you on. And how do you counter with that is the big question. They haven't come up with those counters. They struggle in end-of-game situations and, and late in games when things get half-court and bogged down a little bit. And, of course, the the injury of Reggie Jackson has caused quite a bit of problems for them uh, in the last couple of weeks. Just quickly, because there's bigger stories, but I do think it's interesting that – Having just prepped for the Pistons, they play a unique style. They're running, I think it was 42 handoffs a game. The next closest in the league is 34, and the average is 20. So just a very, very different style. Uh, If you look at their offense, for the first about 25, 30 games, it's really good, and then it falls apart. Do you think, as you said, it's Reggie Jackson, or do you think it's teams adjusting to what is a unique style of play that's different than everybody else? I think it, I think you got it. I think it's the teams adjusting, and I think that well, well, first of all, a lot of the guys, the guy who's taking a lot of those handoffs from Andre Drummond is Avery Bradley. He's been in and out of the lineup as well, so they've been uh, hurt with injuries to him as well. John Luer has missed basically the entire season as well. So there's a lot of injuries that kind of play into those tactical uh, adjustments that the Pistons haven't been able to make, and now they they're run out of problems because. Andre Drummond, when people bottle up those dribble handoffs, he's trying to drive to the basket from the three-point line. And if you've ever watched Andre Drummond play, he does a lot of things very well, some things very, very well. But driving from the three-point line is not one of them, and it's been a cause of some problems from uh, the offense sometimes, uh, especially lately. All right, so they just don't have a, they don't sort of have enough things to to go to when things break down on the first option, and not enough guys who can create their own shot right away. So the the big story today is that Avery Bradley's available. Let me back up to a bigger story. It's been four years, no playoff wins. Stan Van Gundy's been president and head coach. By being president and head coach, you actually put a little bit of a accelerated timetable on your own future. Do the Pistons? Do you think the Pistons are comfortable with Stan Van Gundy making the trade deadline decisions right now? If they might not be comfortable with him going forward at the end of the season? Yeah, that's a great question because if they don't know what his fate's going to be this summer, going into his lame duck fifth uh, fifth year of his five year deal next year, then hopefully he might not make any big destructive decisions for them going forward because they don't want to sell out much of the future. If you're talking about first round draft picks, 
Luke Kennard, Stanley Johnson, some guys who are nice young pieces to try to get into that eighth spot in the playoffs for a team that's, you know, going nowhere in the grand scheme of things. So what do you do? And so I think that hopefully ownership, and we don't hear a lot of from Tom Gores at the top of the organization in terms of the ownership, but hopefully he's at least got enough of a, a handle on things right now where he's telling Stan, you better not mortgage the future too much for this season because there's not much going on this season at all going forward. So do you think they're comfortable with Stan Van Gundy? I think they, it's an interesting question. That's what everyone's talking about in Pistons land right now. And there's not a lot of interest in this team in the Detroit market altogether, as you know, from being here in Detroit last week. But, um, the question that Pistons fans might have to ask themselves is if not Stan Van Gundy, then who? I mean, it's not a very attractive job. You look at Milwaukee right now. That's obviously a much better job. So is Tom Gores prepared to, to buy out a fifth year and get rid of Stan Van Gundy? And then what's, what's the chances that you already gave a, a big name head coach a job and gave him all the team front office power too. So my question to them would be, what's the other options? So, but, but then again, the fan interest is so down right now that they might have to just cut bait and go in some sort of other direction. But if they know that they can get another big name in here to help draw up some interest, and the ones that the fans love to talk about is Chauncey Billups because he was involved in the Cleveland Cavaliers GM search when they were looking for someone last offseason, and he's a hero here in Detroit. And if they can know that a name like that and someone that can draw up some interest might be available, then moving Stan Van Gundy and getting rid of him this offseason might be a real possibility. What is your take on the, what they're trying to do with Avery Bradley? This, what is the reason for the Avery Bradley rumors out today? Because he's an expiring contract, and I don't know if the if he's in the long term plans for the Pistons. You got Tobias Harris is going to be a free agent not this summer, but the following summer. You got Andre Drummond, you got Reggie Jackson lined up on long term deals and expensive deals already. So does Avery Bradley fill in what you need to do when you need to improve this roster this summer? You already have Luke Kennard is possibly moving into that starting off guard role. So if he's ready to take that, maybe you can take that money that you would have to give Avery Bradley this summer for an extension, or I'm sorry, for a free agent pickup because he will be a free agent this summer. Maybe you use that money or resources elsewhere. And if this season's going nowhere, then why not give Avery Bradley up to somebody else who can use him in the postseason because there's a lot of teams out there looking for a wing defender, and he's one of the best in the NBA. So you probably can't get a whole lot for him, given that it's just a couple of months of service, but... If you're the Pistons and you're looking forward, that might be a good idea to try to accumulate what you can for something that's not going to help you in the short term much anyway. Final question I always like to ask, what's going on at, on ground level that at 30,000 feet maybe we don't understand with the Pistons? Um, let's see. What's the? I don't know. I, I think Luke Kennard's uh, – I mean, it's, he's not putting up huge numbers. He's not Donovan Mitchell or Ben Simmons or rookies like that. But Luke Kennard, since the January 1st, since the start of the year, has been – one of the top three or four Pistons when you look at what he's been able to do offensive rating-wise, offensive efficiency-wise, and the defense hasn't been bad enough where he has to be off the court, which is the concern for a lot of people coming into the season. So with a class that's full of great rookies, Luke Kennard is quietly having a really solid season and giving Pistons fans a lot of hope for optimism from that guy going forward. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Matt Shook, Locked On Pistons, giving us the breakdown. It's the biggest stories from the local experts that only the Locked On Podcast Network can deliver.